you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read a couple of paragraphs this morning that sound almost like child's play, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, but this is a very, very important lesson for us today, and it's a critically important lesson, especially for us because of who we are and especially now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And I'm going to ask if you would, let's go old school, stand out of reverence for God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, and not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, because this is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi that he started, and he's heard good things about the Philippians. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What? That should give us pause. I'll tell you why later. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That could be translated without complaining or arguing. Do everything without grumbling, without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain because of your complaining and arguing. Because you're not doing that, it will show that what I did was fruitful. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you. In other words, even if I'm about to die where I am in prison in Rome, I'm glad I rejoice with you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Years ago, Diane and I ordered these cassette tapes. Some of you are old enough to remember cassette tapes. Our car actually had a cassette tape player in it. Some of you are old enough to remember when cars had that. And we ordered a cassette tape of scripture songs. They were songs written for our children to brain, I mean, uh, to manipulate, I mean, to encourage them to get scripture into their hearts and lives. And it was just essentially Bible verses put to music. And one of those Bible verses, it happened to be a point in the cassette tape that Diane and I wore out. One of those Bible verses was, do everything without complaining, do everything without arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. If you sing that to my children, they will roll their eyes, I promise you. We are now going to sing that together. I'm yes. I'm going to do it one more time. Words are not on the screen. You're just going to have to remember them. It goes like this. Do everything without complaint. Not bad. Some of you heard this before. You were manipulating your children as well. Okay, so here we go. Try it. Do everything without complaining. Stop. You got it. Let's do that part again. Do everything without complaining. Next verse. Do everything without arguing. Let's try that again from the top. Make sure we get it. Do everything without complaining. Very good, boys and girls. Do everything 
without arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God from the top. Do everything without complaint. They're so happy. Do everything without arguing so that so that you may become blameless and pure. Blameless and pure children. Children of God. While your children's relationships with one another is a perfectly appropriate application of Paul's teaching here, it's not specifically what he had in mind. He had something much larger and more adult in mind. His intention was to chide us by saying essentially this. Don't let your petty hurt feelings or your small-minded disagreements weaken God's work through you. Because that's what happens. God intends to work through you and through us. And our conflicts, even the smallish ones, they threaten his work. So don't let that happen. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that that will not happen. This is frankly one of those paragraphs that you kind of slip past when you're reading it, but it's an especially important message for us to hear, especially us. We Northern Virginians have a reputation for being extremely demanding people, and don't let yourself off the hook too easily saying, oh, I'm not really a Northern Virginian. You talk to any service provider that works here or, or talk to any teacher that works with your children's school, and they will tell you how demanding we are as a people. Years ago, Diane and I had a friend who had a child on a soccer team, and the, the local soccer league, there's a very good soccer league here in Northern Virginia. It's called the National Capital Soccer League, and it works kind of like one of those European soccer leagues. They have six divisions, and you have to come in first or second, in, or used to, have to come in first or second in Division Six to move up to Division Five, and the bottom two teams in Division Five got relegated down to Division Six, and then you have to come in first or second in Division 5 to move up to Division 4, and first or second in Division 4 to move up to Division 3 all the way to Division 1. This family evidently found out at some point in their journey through this process with their kids, they found out that a team could move from its organization to another organization, to another soccer club, to another town, and they take their ranking with them, by the way, and the whole team moves. And if 75% of the team Supposedly, there are these rules. 75% of the team votes to move to another place, another coach, and another organization. They can do so. If 15% of the kids don't want to move, they, they don't have a team anymore. So they essentially all have to move or they quit. And this one family was telling us about a situation where this happened to them. They were on a Loudoun County team that played in this league, and they got up to Division I, and then another organization in another part of Northern Virginia approached them and said, you know, we can give you more and better opportunities. We will help your kids play college soccer, and we're going to be traveling the country with your children, your 11-year-olds, to help them experience all that they can in the world of soccer. You need to come over to us. It's a little more expensive, but it's far more challenging. And so this team decided that they would move from Loudoun County to become part of another soccer organization and take their ranking with them. The coach of the team, the, the Loudoun County coach of the team, met with the parents last game of the season. He had not been told. He found out the last day of the season. Gathers the parents around him and says, 
this is a mistake. Your children are not ready for this. They're using you. They're going to take your ranking. They're going to slowly, over the next couple of seasons, find better players, and they've got your ranking. They don't have to work their way through the system. And your children, honestly, most of them, are not good enough to do what they're talking about. How many of you think that your children are going to play college soccer? And we were told almost every hand went up. Most of these children ended up not playing high school. Afterwards, our friend was talking to one of the other parents who said, the other parents said to our friend, you know, I don't want to be one of those parents that's overly demanding and overly involved, but this just seems like the right thing to do. Are you kidding me? You are a sociologist dream case for a parent that's overly demanding and overly involved. And our demandingness at work, in our homes, and here is very often the thing that drives us into unnecessary disagreements that weaken God's work through us. We must not let our petty hurt feelings or small-minded disagreements weaken God's work through us. If we live free of arguing and complaining, we will grow in purity and we will shine. We will do what God has called us to do. All right. Now, before we dive further into that principle that he starts in verse 14, he lays down a pretty big context for this principle. And we need to back up a bit and look at the context. So, you know what? We're not talking about the main point today, but this is epically important. So I'm going to move over here. So in your mind's eye, we separate this all out almost like a parenthesis. And I want you to hear this. This is awesome. So let me back up a bit, give the context for this chiding. If you've been with us in our walk through the book of Philippians, you may remember that at the end of chapter 1, Paul encouraged the Philippians and us to stand firm in one spirit. Contend as one person for the faith that we hold. In other words, God intended for his message to spread. And he intends to use us in that process. And unity is key. Then in the second chapter, he encouraged them and us along similar lines. He encouraged us to look beyond ourselves and our own self-interest. He encouraged us to operate out of humility and to care for the needs of others, P.S., it's often the case that when we get stuck emotionally and spiritually, one of the things that gets us out of that is looking beyond ourselves in our own little huddle and serving. He offered up an example to make sure we get the point. And what was the example? Our Lord Jesus. An example of supreme humility and service. Be like Jesus, he encouraged. Be a humble servant. So that brings us to our passage. And he starts off our passage in verse 12 saying, Therefore, as a result of all of this, therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What? Okay, if you're familiar with the teaching of Jesus and the writing of Paul, this should give you pause for a second. So we need to step back from our main point and ask a critically important question about this verse. Warning to those of you who think that doctrine is about as exciting as a dentist's office, there's some doctrine coming. But it's so important, so hang with me. So we have to ask, does this command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, does it contradict Paul's emphasis in other places that the believer is justified by faith through God's grace? Does the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling 
contradict Paul's emphasis in other places that the believer is justified by faith through God's grace. Let me explain. Now, if you're here this morning and you grew up Catholic, and many of you did, or if you grew up lowbrow Protestant like Nikki or like I did, then you kind of ended up feeling oppositionally toward one another. But ironically, you had something really important in common. If you grew up Catholic or, let's say, Southern Baptist, chances are you may have developed the impression that the way to have a relationship with God was through being a good person. In other words, God wants, more than anything, for you to be good. He expects it. And when you're good, you earn his favor, right? But that's not only not true, that's a dangerous doctrine. In another one of Paul's letters to a church in Rome, he says this in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Paul lays this out. He says, for all have sinned. He's talked about this for three chapters to set up this verse. For all have sinned. This isn't just a passing point. He wants to make sure we get this. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of what God's desire is. We've fallen short of God's glory. And all are freely Not because of your list of good deeds. We're all freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And then he explains that more fully. He teases that out and he uses Abraham as an example. And he basically says, look, not even Abraham was made right with God because of his good things. Abraham, his rightness with God, his righteousness is the Bible word, was credited to him. It was given to him. He says this in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, to the one who's working really hard to be a good person, wages aren't credited as a gift, but they come as an obligation. You have to pay your workers. But that's not how it works with us. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited. It's given as righteousness. He summarizes. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, not through our good deeds, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says at another point, in another letter, he keeps repeating this. A letter to a group of ancient Christians in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this. For it's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves, It's the gift of God, because I don't want anybody bragging, you didn't do this. I want to quote uh, one commentary I read on this passage. This is awesome. This guy says, one of the most important themes in Paul's theology is, listen to this, that human effort cannot even cooperate with God's grace to yield a right standing before God on the final day. In other words, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself look better before God. Nothing. Let's comprehend that. There's nothing you can do to make yourself look better before God. He continues, to Paul, even Abraham, popularly thought to be the most righteous of all Jews, must be considered ungodly when a right standing before God is the issue. We are justified by faith as a gift, not by what we do. 
What does that mean? First of all, it's important for us to notice the difference between Paul's use of the word salvation and his use of the word justification. When Paul speaks of justification, he's using that word in a very technical, legal sense. He wants you to imagine a courtroom every time you read that word. The judge stands before you ready to pass sentence on your ultimate guilt or innocence. And on what basis will you be found innocent? In other words, on what basis are you found justified before God? The answer is solely your ultimate innocence is based on your faith in Jesus and comes to you as God's gift released to you because of that faith. Your innocence is based on whether or not God gives you innocence. And that's released to you as a gift that you accept through faith. So God isn't going to say, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? God is going to say, did you accept the gift that I offered? Did you put your trust in my son? Did you? It has nothing to do with your good deeds. I heard someone explain this one time. A, a preacher gave an excellent illustration. He said someone asked him one time, so, and the person was mostly drunk when he asked. said, you know, you're one of those religious guys. Tell me the whole story. And he said he realized he had about 35 seconds to explain it before this guy would lose his attention. There was also a crowd behind him who perked up when they heard this guy ask, religious guy, this, this question. So religious guy says, you know, I think it's like this. I think... Religion, most people think of it as spelled D-O, but Jesus spelled it D-O-N-E. It's what God has done for you. Have you accepted that gift? That's justification. Salvation, on the other hand, when Paul uses this word, he's usually speaking about our experience of God now and our ultimate deliverance into his presence in the future. And this experience, we can enrich this experience. We can deepen our experience of him now and perhaps even our experience in the future. We do this by nurturing our connection to him. We do this by working out our salvation. So there's no contradiction between what Paul says here and his usual understanding of God's work in our lives. We are justified before God as a gift of God, which we accept through faith. It's not something we can work at. Indeed, we cannot work at it at all. Our works are useless, but our experience of God is something we can and must nurture. We don't earn our relationship with God, but we should deepen it. So when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he means almost exactly the same thing as he meant a couple of chapters ago in chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of your calling. In another place, he reminded the Romans later in that letter in chapter 11, verse 27, he says, never let your zeal be lacking, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And this is what he's saying to the Philippians. This is not casual Christianity, as I said last week. This is passionate. This is the Apostle Paul saying, more. You've experienced good stuff now, more. That's why we've called this series spiritual growth. This isn't spiritual idling. 
And then I want you to notice how anxious he is to immediately remind them that they cannot do good works apart from God's work in them, nor can their good works help them impress God at all. Immediately after he says this, he wants to be sure that they understand that this is no different from the rest of his teaching. So he adds, for it's God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purposes. Okay, that is the doctrinal context. And several excited people said amen. Okay, even though they had to be nursed to do so, they said it. They said it. Gladly and wholeheartedly, so wholeheartedly, they couldn't contain themselves. They said it yet again. It's okay. That's what we're calling church. That's the doctrinal context. And and after that, it gets down to the specific business of working it out. Now, this brings us to the main point of our section and what we're talking about today. Now, listen, given that background, like given that epic context, right, he could have talked about sexual purity. Or he could have talked about learning to control your anger. Or he could have talked about resisting our tendency to greed. He could have talked about any number of things. But he chooses to speak about arguing and complaining. Grumbling. Why? Well, look, this is no small issue. This is not child's play. Arguing and complaining is not a small thing. Almost every time, almost every time, you're in one of those places where your brow is furrowed and you're turned to someone like this and you're going, why did they, how, did you see how they, the, the, my, my child, they did, that was my parking space. It was so hot in there. I was freezing. I had to put my coat on, then it got hot. The lights weren't working. I couldn't even see. He asked us to look at the Bible. I opened it. I couldn't see anything. Almost every time you're in one of those conversations with yourself or with someone else, you're in a very, very bad place. It's worth noting that there was a serious conflict simmering within the Philippian fellowship, and Paul knew how much damage that conflict could do. I want you to listen to what he says. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, let's say, he says this, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, your loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help them. I want them to agree. We don't know the specifics of this conflict, but we know it's serious enough that Paul ends up calling out the names of the players. Again, Paul knew how much damage unresolved simmering conflict could do to a marriage to a friendship, to a church. So the unity of these Philippians is of utmost importance, and he contends for it over and over again in this letter. He delivers one more nail in what I'm sure he hopes will be the coffin of this conflict. Look, we've already said a number of times through our conversations that Paul has heard good things about the Philippians. The occasion of this letter is a visit from a guy named Epaphroditus, and we hear about him in the next section of the letter. And he's actually brought money or gifts from the Philippian Christians to Paul, and he's brought a good report about good stuff that's happening in the church there in Philippi. But Paul has also gotten a report of some disturbing arguments. He's he's mentioned the need for unity already. He's urged them to have the mind of Christ, and 
to be humble servants, but now he wants to give an even more specific encouragement. So he says, look, you should do everything without complaining or arguing. Don't grumble. And he wants to make it clear that their conflicts and ours can weaken God's work in us and through us. Paul ends up saying it more positively than I'm going to say it this morning, but this is his point. So let's follow the rest of his discussion in this argument. When you are in serious, ongoing, unresolved conflict, your spiritual life and your spiritual influence are threatened. And he implies three areas that are impacted by our conflicts. So I want you to hear this. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 again. So first of all, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. In other words, your attitude of non-grumbling and not arguing results in part in you being blameless and pure like a child of God in a crooked and depraved generation among other people who are doing lots of grumbling and complaining and arguing. Conflict threatens our character. If we allow ourselves to have those kinds of conversations with ourselves or with others, our character is being threatened. Our purity, our blamelessness. Secondly, I'm going to go down to the first part of verse 16. He says, as you hold out the word of life, end of verse 15, in which this crooked and depraved generation in which you, unlike them, shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In other words, we're doing this business of spreading God's message. And when we argue and complain, that business is threatened. So our influence, our ministry is threatened by our conflicts. Finally, he says at the end of verse 16, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, that I didn't run or labor in vain. In other words, your conflict threatens the ministry of others around you. And it it, it threatens God's overall reputation. I want to say to you honestly, I'm not kidding, don't threaten my reputation. When you go out to your local school and you act like a don't take gateway stickers off your car. Right? And I promise I'll try to do the same thing for you. Somebody drove up here the other day, got here, came in the building. They had one of those kind of looks on your face that we all recognize. They'd just gone through northern Virginia traffic. And they said to me essentially, well, I'm really glad I had a gateway stick on the back of my car. Otherwise, that gun rack might have come in handy. Look, the language here is reminiscent of the story of the Exodus. And some of you know the Old Testament story of the Exodus. God took his people out of Egypt, and he had them traveling through the desert, going to the promised land. God had a mighty, mighty work for his people to do. And instead, what they ended up doing was grumbling and complaining. And it's the exact same words that are used here and not by accident. Paul has this in mind. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually calls that generation that was in the desert saying, why don't we just go back to Egypt? At least we had something decent to eat. He calls them a crooked and depraved generation. 
Don't be like that, God is saying. I've got a mighty work for you to do. And he does. I'm going to tell this real quick. I didn't mean to do this. This is a pause for dramatic effect. (laughs) Some of you have heard this before, but years ago, a Northern Virginia developer who was, uh, that's another word for a very well-dressed used car salesman. He found a piece of property out Gum Spring Road that was dramatically undervalued. It was over 31 acres, and it was being sold for a song. So he wanted to build a mall on this property. At the time, there were 400 homes in South Riding, and nothing else was here. You people were living in Texas or Michigan or Alexandria, and some of you were in middle school. This was 20 years ago. Some of you were 60. And he came out one day to walk the property to just see what kind of mall he was going to build and how much money he was going to make. He was a fairly new Christian, and while he was out here, he felt like God spoke to him. It was the first time he'd ever had an experience like that. And he said, no, that property is mine. I want to build a church on that property for this area. That was 20 years ago. There were trees here. He approached me along with several other pastors. And I gave him the godly, holy answer because that's the kind of guy I am. Diane and I, my wife and I, had just moved here. We were starting this church. And I said to him, I'm not here to build a building. I'm here to build a church because the church is us. And he gave me what, seriously, he gave me what turned out to be the more godly answer. He said, you're an idiot. 20 years later, this is the church that he's raising up, and you are in it. He's got something for us to do. He started this 20 years ago. He started this before there were trees on this property. And you're in it. You're not here casually. That's not just some religious thing that we say here on Sunday mornings regularly. Regularly we say, we don't believe you're here by accident. And we don't. I don't yet know. I I told you this a few weeks ago. I don't yet know the specifics of God's next challenge for us, but it's coming. And it's not going to be small. And we can't let that be threatened by our petty disagreements and our our small-minded hurt feelings. Where was I? Okay, there's been an evolution in my thinking about faith over the years. I know some of you, some of you I've tracked with for years, and I know that you've had similar kinds of evolution in your thinking. When I was young, I used to think that Christian faith was about being good. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go out with girls who do. Later, when I started getting serious about my spiritual life, I came to understand that Christianity is not really about how much good I do, but it's about how much I know. The critical thing I realized was Bible study and and Bible knowledge and knowledge about God. But eventually, God brought me to the point of understanding that that too is terribly insufficient. Our faith doesn't center on how much good we do or how much we know. The heart of our faith is how much and how well we love. Jesus didn't disciple people by giving them a list of rules. Nor did he disciple people by laying out an extensive curriculum. 
We don't even have that much actual teaching from Jesus. He discipled people by saying to them, follow me. Watch what I do, then let's talk about it, then you try to do it. And as for his teaching, the core of it was this, love one another. And if you want a quick spark note summary of the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, if you don't have time to read the whole thing, Jesus gave us the Cliff Notes version. He said, love God and love your neighbors. Our spiritual life is not some abstract thing. It's tangible. It happens in the very real context of our relationships, in our neighborhood, at work, at school, at home, and here. To grow spiritually means to grow in our capacity to love God and to love others. So we must do everything, church, without complaining or arguing. That's why, for instance, Paul says to another group of Christians in Ephesus, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And if you store up anger, your spirit will complain and you will end up arguing and your relationships will sour. Diane and I made this a habit, a literal habit, early in our marriage. We sort of covenanted with one another early in our marriage. We would not let the sun literally go down on our anger. And so there were times in our marriage where we were up till 3 in the morning resolving arguments that we had during the day. The only positive thing I can say about it is the makeup was awesome. And it saved us. It saved us from freezer-emptying conversations. You know what I mean. We don't have time. Let's go to bed. The next day, we're barely speaking with one another because there's this little issue. But we're going to get over it, and two days later, we're fine, sort of. But there's this little bit of residue, there's just a little snowball that we've stuck in the freezer. And then a week later, and then a month and a half later, and finally there's the big one, right? Yeah, and remember the time that, and remember the time saved Diane and I from freezer emptying conversations because there wasn't anything in the freezer. Do everything without complaining and arguing. That's why Paul says to the Philippians, for instance, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. When we operate out of selfish ambition, we will allow complaint to take root in our spirits and we will devolve into ruinous arguments in your home, among your neighbors, at work, at school. Do everything without complaining or arguing. And also here at Gateway. Do you realize, those of you who are visiting, allow me for a moment to speak to us as a body. Those of you who've been here a while, those of you who are just now connecting. Do you realize how many opportunities there are to argue and complain here about your children? This or that didn't happen. Or have you seen the line at the check-in? Sorry, we're still figuring it out. Or us complaining about your children. Did you see how they were acting after the service? They knocked over our little Diane as they were running down the hall. That stinking bully, next time I see him, I'm going to trip him. How hot or cold the room is. How loud or not loud the sound is. Are you kidding me? The bathrooms. You name it. We're about to start a second service at Gateway. God has blessed us. Thank you. Yes, these, 
He's blessed us with you, and he's blessed us, so we need to create space for the neighbors and friends and coworkers that you're going to be inviting. And they got so excited about that, they said a hearty amen. Even though it was half-hearted, they really felt it. So we're about to start a second service, and there are going to be a million reasons for you to be able to argue and complain. We're making this up. Some of you have been part of churches before who've had multiple services, and we may lean on your experience, but I want you to understand that experience is awesome. Thank you. We'll need it, but it's also limited. We've never done it, and we've never done it in this facility. No one has ever done it in this facility with that parking lot on the corner of Gum Springs and Tall Cedars. There's a lot to figure out. So we're going to be having two services beginning Easter of this year. By the way, P.S., we need a lot of volunteers. And they weren't even tempted to argue or complain when he said that. They received that news delightedly. In fact, for the third time in the service, which is very unusual at Gateway, they said a hearty amen. Yes, we're going to need lots of volunteers. So if you've been coming and sit, yeah. If you've been coming and sitting, you know, thank you for coming. Stop sitting. We need you. There are going to be a million reasons to argue and complain. Don't do it. We've been told this morning specifically, don't do it. Let's grow up emotionally and spiritually. Let's learn how to go to one another and say, hey, thanks so much for your service. You know, I was concerned about, right? Now, there's a different way to say that. You know, thank you for what you do. I was really concerned about, right? But that's the spirit of arguing and complaining. So before we even get there, let's grow up a little bit and learn to go to one another and talk to one another. People of God, don't do it. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you can become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Our character will be preserved and grown among our generation, among our neighbors and friends. We will shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. Then our witness and God's reputation will be enhanced. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. So, Father, I don't know the particular ways that you have spoken to each of us, but we receive it this morning, and we ask you to protect it, seal it, lock it up. And, Lord, we pray that it would ooze into our character. Some of us, Father, we confess this morning, we can't help it. We tend to be pretty negative. And there are some positive attributes that go with that, but the complement of those positive attributes can be our negativity, our criticalness. And this morning we surrender that to you. We confess it to you. We ask you to soften our hearts and we ask that you would help us to grow up in that area and to begin to talk to one another honestly and with encouragement, but truthfully. Others of us, Lord, tend to be the opposite. We just smile and we want to be encouraging and, Lord, we just store stuff up and sometimes we don't even realize it. And eventually it becomes unmanageable and we damage ourselves or we damage others by lashing out in ways that are unfair because we're emptying the freezer. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us to grow up and be more honest with ourselves and with others and more timely. I pray especially in the name of Jesus that you would protect the relationships here, that you would preserve our unity. Everything depends on it. That you would protect it and that you would promote it. I pray especially, Lord, for those that are just beginning to connect themselves to Gateway. The time is coming, Father, when this is going to be challenged. We're going to rub up against one another. And I pray toward that day. I pray against that day that, that we would remember today that we have resolved to do nothing that has to do with complaining or arguing or grumbling. Keep us clean. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Moses. Awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sermon, the message. Lord, we pray that it changes us. We pray that your word changes us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you take these gifts that we've given and use it to further your kingdom. And Lord, as we go out to this world this week, I pray that you allow us to be your vessels and to be your hands and feet as we step into this world and we can share your love with our community. We thank you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.